After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Thanks for joining us. This is an episode from our back catalog, so the episode numbers and firm name may have changed. But this is quality information, so instead of scrapping them, we decided it was more important to make sure you still had access. Enjoy the episode, and listen to new episodes of David vs. Goliath at dolmanlaw.com. Welcome to episode number seven of the Dolman Law Group podcast. I'm here at Trescott Gear from the Gear Law Firm in Tampa. Trescott is of counsel to the Dolman Law Group where he handles employment and labor issues. Trescott, say hello to the audience today. How's it going, Dolman audience? Trescott, again, handles uh, issues for our firm. Trescott, today we're going to talk about sexual harassment. What is sexual harassment? What does it constitute? What are legal remedies? Take us through the whole uh, nuts and bolts of it. Okay, seatbelts fastened over here. So from the macro level, sexual harassment is any inappropriate conduct in the workplace that involves, uh, you could call it inappropriate conversations, inappropriate behavior, anything that's drawing uh, parallels between the perpetrator and the victim's sex. When is it consensual? So let's let me take you through a couple scenarios, okay. if you will. So Play in this situation, um, you have uh, someone working your, in your workplace that yeah, you find interesting, you know, you mm -hmm. take an interest in them. You ask them out for a lunch or a dinner, and it's consensual, though. Okay. All right? It, it, there's, they go out with you. Clearly, they take part in it. There's a mutual meeting of the minds. Okay. When does it become harassment? Why would that be considered harassment? Okay. Well, let's add, let's add a couple of facts to this. Are you this person's superior? I am. Okay. And take me through why that would be a problem if I am their okay. superior. So the typical problem that comes into play is whether or not there's been a coercive action on the part of the superior. If the – we won't call them a victim. We'll call them the potential victim in this case – feels as though you are coercing them into this action, aka you're taking advantage of them. It may be from the pretext of, hey, this just goes out to dinner or whatnot. But if he or she believes that by not going to the dinner, you're placing them in some sort of job jeopardy, some sort of adverse job jeopardy, that's where we start going down the road of the road of harassment. Now, as of right now, in this hypothetical, you don't I don't believe you've caused anything wrong. At this point, if we add more facts to the case, if there have been, you know, in this new age of digital media, if there have been text messages, Facebook messages, instant messages, of course, in these kind of offices, inner office messages, uh, these all create a pattern of conduct that a court could find in favor of the victim. Before we move forward, though, let's uh, say I make it obvious that it's consensual, that uh, mm -hmm. there's nothing to be gained or lost by me, by you going out with me. You're mm -hmm. the female in this case. Is there a negative inference to be drawn from that? I, I know it's probably not best practices. But is there a negative inference to be drawn from the fact that I'm just a superior? If we just, in a vacuum, mm -hmm. that's the only fact you know is that I'm the superior, mm -hmm. will the court draw a negative inference to that? Could that be a negative inference uh, actually instructed to a jury? No, no, that, that, that won't be a negative inference. There has to be an action taken, a hostile action taken against the person who we'll call, we call me in this case, the, the female victim. There has to be a hostile action taken. Um, there has to have been some sort of change in job status. We can call it a demotion in pay. We can call it a restructuring of job details. You can call it even um, a denial of a promotion. Now, the issue that the, that the victim in this case, who would come to us, has is 
provability. She has to show that but for her rebuffing of you in this case, she would have received all the benefits, the tangible benefits of her job. That's the, that's the danger that plaintiffs run into in, in cases like this. But I tell all my potential clients, the first thing you want to do is document everything. If the superior is constantly hounding you, for instance, if you've turned him down for dinner a couple of times and he just won't, he won't let up, he's persistent, he's blowing you up, so to speak, to use the modern parlance, um, you want to be documenting everything. You want to be keeping the record for the attorneys of the Dolman Law Group. You want to be keeping the record of all the communications between the two of you. Okay. Um, because from that point, that's where we bring up the word, the word inference. The, the inference comes into play when you see the record of conversations, the record of conduct, and you're trying to draw a malignant basis from that point. You know, we're in the, uh, the era of the Me Too movement, yes. right? And uh, everybody knows that's caught a lot of fire in social media. And Me Too movement, for those who are not aware, have been living in a cave for the last few months. <laughs> is, uh, there's a lot of individuals, a lot of women who have come out now um, and have you know, garnered the strength to talk about past incidents uh, involving harassment. Some of them are very egregious. But what are the gray areas? When is it not egregious? What are the issues where you've seen where it really does not reach to the point of being harassment that you're seeing where clients or prospective consumers reach out to you and it's just, it's not quite there. You know, tell my audience, where, do, where is the gray line and when do you cross that line? So just to go back to our initial hypothetical involving the male superior and the, and the female subordinate, just because you have had an, an adverse action taken against you at work does not mean you're the victim of some sort of sexual harassment or sexual discrimination. A light, light teasing, you know, there's a very collegial, there's oftentimes a lot of very collegial atmosphere in, in these type of modern working environments. There has to be something that goes beyond what a reasonable person would infer would make them uncomfortable. So you look pretty today. You look nice in that dress. Is that? Now, even when you say look nice in that dress, we start leading to the their under their undertones and connotations from that that can start creating a case in her mind and possibly a case in the courts. That's mind. not enough, though. It's now, up. if you are making blankets, to, the key with this, as long as you're not treating her any differently than other similar situated individuals in the office. Ironically, if you treat all the people in the work on a similar level, it gives her less of a, less of a cause of action. So if you're the guy that constantly makes jokes and you say, hey, you look good in that dress, but the dress would look even better if it was crumpled up on the floor, is that crossing the line? But what if you make those jokes every day to different people in the office? Now, what also starts is, has she made a complaint before yet? Okay. Okay, has she made, because if there's ever an HR function at a, at a workplace, they're going to have an internal policy on sexual harassment complaints. If she's never made a complaint about any of this before, then it's not going to look good from my standpoint as the attorney because she not only has not shown enough of a pattern of abusive behavior to connotate sexual harassment, but also she's failed to show that she went through the proper internal channels that most workplaces have to ensure that the behavior was ever corrected. If the guy never had a chance to correct the behavior, guy or girl had a chance to correct the behavior, then the inference that can be drawn is that the behavior was not so flagrant, so willful to lead to a sexual harassment. What about a small business where, you know, again, you have the superior to subordinate relationship, mm -hmm. but the superior, it's a small business and that superior, let's say it's Dolman Law Group. Let's say I didn't have a lot of employees. Mm -hmm. We have 30 some employees here, but let's say we just let's me. Let's say you have under Let's tech. say it's just me. Yes. And I am HR. I am the owner. On everything. Then what? Then who do you report it to? Now, that's the issue because typically what you do is you run it up the chain of command 
unless the media super superior is the person doing the doing the potentially harassing behavior. Yeah, and I decide yes. that that's perfectly fine behavior, and I'm going to continue on with that. Or in that case, your only chance is to go outside the organization and file a charge with the government agency. Now, since you mentioned that in this hypothetical, you are a small business under 15 employees, you're not under the protection of federal labor laws. We always know know that Florida is an at-will state. It doesn't mean that you can be discriminated against based on your protected characteristics, race, sex, gender, disability, all those fundamental qualities that make you an American citizen. You would have to go to the FCRA, which is, which is or FCHR, which is the Florida Commission on Human Relations, file a charge with them. And now the other concern with this, or the protection that you as an employer have, she has a limited amount of window to do to do this, to file this charge. You don't get to, you know, I don't want to draw comparisons between this and say the Bill, the Bill Cosby situation, because those are apples and oranges. But in those cases, those don't fall under the same sort of statute of limitations issues that sexual harassment does. Sure. You've got 180 days to, to file your charge. So your recourse is you file the charge. Your recourse is you file, the, you file the charge with the FCHR. The state agency does their own investigation of the employer. They'll contact the employer, get the employer's side of the statement, what's called a position statement. At, at what point the, the employer will have an opportunity to rebut each of the charges brought by, in this case, the female subordinate. Now, if I'm being if I'm being honest, the FCHR rarely finds cause for this because there is a lot of, you know, boy who cried wolf in these type of scenarios. Even with us being aware that the Me Too movement overall has been helpful and instructional in opening the eyes to possible workplace harassment around the country, there's a there's not a lot of smoke, but there's fire there. When once they've completed the investigation. Then they'll issue what's known as a right to sue letter to the female subordinate. That'll only give her 90 days to file a lawsuit in state court. So these timelines, they move, they move fast. You can't sit on your sit on your ass, for lack of a better word, for a year or two and then come back and go, oh, when, when he accidentally massaged my shoulders two years ago, now I'm feeling as though I was threatened, hurt, harassed, bullied, all the other demeaning qualities. Why did you do something about it during the statute? Why did you, yes. Yes. Okay. So I would stress to people who may believe that there's even something there. That's why you create the timeline. You create the timeline of the events, the, the highly questionable events. And then we have to go back and relate back to that timeline and see, well, how close are we to running out of time, so to speak, and get your charge filed as quickly as possible. Okay. So the warning signs are just anything that's inappropriate and then really looking for a timeline where there's a you know, history, it becomes habitual. Well, yes, there's there's... The other warning signs are habitually singling the person out. Now, the singling out aspect is oftentimes the most underrated part of sexual harassment is treating her differently than everyone else. It could be better, better or poorly, but if she's constantly being singled out you know, with either criticism or praise, that's at least some room, room for concern from that standpoint. Um, what she needs to do is not only not not fall, not fall prey to the advances of the superior, but rebuff them and also make note to him directly that this is unwarranted and not cause for anything further going forward. Okay. We already discussed how you go about combating it, which is obviously creating the timeline, the history, mm -hmm. and, and obviously getting it done within the statutory period. Let's talk about retaliatory conduct. I know that okay. becomes an issue often in these sexual harassment. Uh, cases where the employer retaliates against the employee or the former employee. Mm -hmm. Tell me the type of situations that occur. So that typically comes into play. We previously talked about the demotions or the change in your job duties. 
retaliation from both a federal and a state level involves, in this case, still the female subordinate, engaging in protected activity, aka going to HR, filing a charge with the government, something in which she should be insulated from recourse. Okay. And then there's an adverse job action taken against her in that aspect. She's demoted from $15 an hour to $12 an hour. She's bumped down from salary to hourly. The employer has to, when she brings this action based on retaliation, he has to show that there was a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for her being moved from an administrative assistant to a laborer, for instance, if her duties have changed dramatically. So that's a duty that's on the employer no matter what the situation is. Once once she brings once she brings this action against Okay, the she doesn't employer. bring an action. What's the best, you know, what's the best advice you have for employers out mm-hmm. there to avoid being on the target list? So to avoid having a potential action taken against you, the job performance of your employee is subpar, it's substandard. Mm-hmm. You want to demote them, you want to, you know, decrease their hours, decrease mm-hmm. their pay, uh, remove certain responsibilities, what have you, maybe remove a title. How do you do that without it looking like there might be a retaliatory conduct because there's a potential that could always be brought against you? That that's a very that's a very good question. It's sort of the inverse of the document everything and timeline situation. You want not not you don't want to become an enemy to your employees, but you want to have them be on notice that their work performance or job performance is at a certain level. If anything deviates from that level, that gives you grounds. That's where, as the internal HR functionary, whether you are the sole proprietor or whether you're running a firm the size of Dolman Law Group, that's where you have to create internal policies and procedures that are well, well laid out, well, well documented, and also put them on notice as to any corrective action that could take place. So oftentimes you see this in the form of a, of a progressive action plan or a corrective action plan when it comes to discipline, the first written, the first written final, and then termination. You have to put them on notice that the behavior is not going to be warranted moving forward. Okay. You can't, you get into danger as an employer when you seem to just take an adverse action against them with no explanation or no basis for them to come to understanding about why you made the decision. Clarity will save you a lot, thousands of dollars down the line as an employer in an employment suit. If you are just clear with so the objectives. Document everything you possibly can. Document everything you possibly can. And in your internal policies and procedures, you want to lay out clear ground marks for what are either offensive behavior or unwarranted job behavior. Even, even if this person is being harassed, if they're, if they're not being harassed at a level that qualifies for sexual harassment, you can still take an adverse action against them as long as they are so deviating from your company's norms at that position that not taking action is going to be costing you money. At the end of the day, the court is going to respect the employer's ability to run a, run a well-run business. Okay. Just can't be at the expense of their, their civil rights. And that's just a position of employment law in a nutshell. Understood. Well, this concludes episode number seven of the Dolman Law Group podcast. Tresk, is there any other issues about sexual harassment you want to discuss, or do you think we've covered it all in a nutshell? I think we've, gave, we've given the broad strokes. If anyone has issues, mm-hmm. feel free to contact the Dolman Law Group. We have a team of highly experienced employment attorneys on staff ready to assist. Tresk, what's the easiest way for my listeners to contact you directly? The easiest way to contact me is through my, my actual my phone number, which is 855-GEAR-LAW, or you can even reach me at Trescott. It's a funky name, so I'll do it phonetically. Tango, Romeo, Echo, Sierra, Charlie, Oscar, Tango at gearlawllc.com. 
free to answer any questions. That's like gear spelled G-E-A-R. G-E-A-R, like the gear of a car. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you coming out today. And again, this concludes episode number seven. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N-Law.com or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.